we are doing blueprint, God's design for the church. And so blueprint really for us just means that we're studying through the book of Acts. And so as we're studying through the book of Acts, we're going to see how the church began. What are some of the things that the church did? Right before we started the book of Acts, we did our our mission statement sermons, if you will, on community, mission, and care. We talked about what it means to have community. We talked about what it means to have mission and what it means for us to be the kind of church that's caring. And as we saw that, we said, if we fulfill those particular things, then we are going to be the kind of church that the Lord wants us to be. And so after we talked about community, mission, and care, um, we said we're going to go to the book of Acts and we're going to see repeated examples of community mission and care happening so that we can have tangible real life examples of, oh, that's what that looks like. OK, I can do that so that we can see those things happening throughout the book of Acts so that we can do community mission care in here and fulfill the mission that God's called us to. So uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to be in Acts chapter four. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter four. We're going to start right at verse twenty three. Verse 23, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you've given to us. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you love us far more than we could ever conceive, far more than we could ever imagine. And that because of that, Lord, we are forgiven of so much more than we could ever imagine. And I pray that 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 truth and that reality would drive us and push us and help us understand that you have called us to an incredible mission, but you have forgiven us. And this great gospel message can be told to others and they can come to know Jesus. We love you, Lord. And we ask for this time. I pray for anyone here that's not a believer, that they would hear the gospel, that they would respond in faith. And for those that are believers, as they hear what Christ has done and as they see in this, in this text what makes the church just an amazing thing, as they see that, that they would be encouraged and, and desire to continue to persevere in the faith. We love you, Lord, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's hot in here. Y'all feel that? It's like mega hot. Um, <clears throat> forgive me as I uh, drink water throughout this. So, as we've been going through the book of Acts, something that I've kind of wanted to make sure that you see is Acts chapter 2 yields Acts chapter 3. The reason why we have Acts chapter 3 is because Acts chapter 2 took place. And because Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 took place, it yields for us Acts chapter 4 where we are. In other words, Acts chapter 2 is where the coming of the Holy Spirit comes. And so when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, all the disciples there are filled with the Spirit. And as that happens, they're sent out and are quite bold as they walk around as believers now. And so in Acts chapter 3, whenever uh, Peter's walking around, because he's filled with the Spirit, because he's confident of the Holy Spirit in him, he does something he's never done. He looks at somebody and heals them. I mean, this is unheard of. Jesus did that, but all of a sudden, Peter does that. So because of Acts chapter 2 being filled with the Spirit, they have great confidence now to walk out and live out their faith with great boldness and begin to heal people and proclaim the gospel. And whenever that happens, and they're telling the religious leaders of the time, Acts chapter 3, and as they tell those religious leaders of the time who don't want to hear that, that yields Acts chapter 4, which is where persecution comes. Persecution comes to the particular church. And so there's a progression that's happening in these particular chapters. And so as As we get to Acts chapter 4, which we finished last week, we did verses 1 through 22. They were told, listen, we don't want you to tell anybody about Jesus anymore. And you can see their response in verses uh, 19 and following. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you 
listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, you're not God. And so we're pretty sure we should listen to God instead of you. What do you think? We can't stop talking about what we've heard since God has told us. And so we're going to go into this next section knowing that persecution has happened. And so Peter and his friends are going to go back to their friends because they got released from, from this night they spent in prison and report to their friends about what happened. And as they're in this report from 23 all the way down to 37, the rest of the, of the text, um, this report is going to show us some things that makes the church great makes the church great. So let's ask the question, what makes the church great? What does make the church great? Is it the preacher? Does the preacher make the church great? Or is it the music? Is it the facility that the church has? Is that what makes, is it the kids area? I mean, there's, there's kids area that have slides. If you get your kid there 10 minutes early, then they get to go down the slide. If you get there late, then they have to walk down the stairs like some loser. They don't get to go down the slide and their parent, they're mad at their parents. So it teaches the parents to get there early. Like, are those the things that make the church great? They're not. They're not the things that make no, those things are important. I'm not saying I'm not minimizing. I'm saying they're not important, but they're not the things I think biblically that make the church great. So what we're going to look at today are you can put up the title are the things that make the church great. These are the mindsets that the apostles have, the disciples have in the first century that make the church great. Now, I'm not ripping this off from Donald Trump, uh, like, cause I don't have the word again there. Uh, this is my stuff. Like, this is, I don't, I'm not saying like make the church great again. That's not what I'm doing. What I want to you, for you to see is that we're wanting to make the church great. Now, we're going to get to what that means in just a second. But today, especially as we are the church in North America and really globally now, the church when I say the church, I don't mean Remedy Church. I mean the church, all the people. The church is finding our, we're finding ourselves more and more marginalized, more and more pushed to the outskirts of society. And the question is, in this marginalization that's happening, what are we going to do? A.W. Tozer has a, an amazing quote, Aiden Wilson Tozer. Um, I named my firstborn after him. It says, he says this, it is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. It may, the church may be envied for its depth of loving relationships or for its spontaneous joy. It may be hated and persecuted for its revolutionary lifestyle, exposing hollow values and destructive selfishness of the society that it seeks to serve. But certainly the church cannot be ignored. And we must not, as the church, allow ourselves to be ignored and pushed to the margins where we're not even being heard anymore. We must be radical as the church, pushing, our, pushing Christ forward so that people know who he is and people know who we are. So when we're saying here, um, we're, we're going to look at how to make the church great. You might be asking, if you're, if you're a studier of hermeneutics, that's just a biblical interpretation is that what Luke's trying to do in this text? Is Luke, as he's writing, trying to intend to us to get what makes the church great? Is he writing this to help us understand this is how you make the church great? Well, let, let's, let me answer that in this way. Here's what's clear. The church, the very first church, is starting. And as they're starting, the church is about to and really already has exploded. At least 8,000 people have already been saved thus far. Um, the church is about to be, I mean, really great here in the book of Acts. 
Luke is documenting the rise of the church so that we can understand how it grew. So while this text is likely descriptive, describing how the church grew and became great, not prescriptive, making a prescription of how to make the church great, I think you can draw out principles of things they do here in this particular chapter. And those things applied to us will make the church great. Now, let me be clear about what I mean when I say church great, because thus far you might be thinking, Bud, what's wrong with you, man? Like, you're supposed to be really Christ-focused. It's not about us. So when I say make the church great, I mean making the church great means so that the, Jesus can be made known. And, be, and as he's made known, everyone knows that he is glorious and he is great. So the, us becoming great just means us doing our job well so that Jesus is made known as glorious and great all over this city and all over the world. So don't hear me by saying make the church great. It's all about us. That's, that's the opposite of what I mean. I mean, we need to be functioning the way that God wants us, functioning great, doing what the Lord wants us to do well so that he is made known and he is glorious. And as he is glorious, everyone knows that he is already great. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23, and we're going to see here what's going on in this first century church and how the church can be made great today. So verse 23, so they just gotten persecuted <clears throat> They've been released. They told him not to speak anymore after Peter had healed this guy. But everybody saw that this guy was really healed. He's standing right there. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends. They reported what the chief priests and the elders told them, which, you know, don't talk. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Now he's going to quote Psalm chapter two, verses one and two. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord's, against the Lord and against the Lord, his anointed. They're, they're quoting Psalm two and they're saying that's happening right now. What was said in Psalm two is happening right now. Herod and Pilate are the people that set themselves against the Lord's anointed Jesus. And they're going to tell us that's what they mean right here after that. For truly in this city where we're gathered together against your, um, against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel are doing that very thing. They're setting themselves up. And then it says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. <clears throat> when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no, that's close to 8,000 people, by the way. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they all had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. Great grace in the, in the, in the Greek is mega grace. Just think like massive, awesome grace. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and the and bought I'm sorry let's read that again hooked on phonics didn't work for me whenever I was little all right let's let, we'll go all the way back to verse 34 here there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need thus Joseph who is also by the apostles um, Barnabas, 
which also means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. So here what we're going to see in this particular text are four mindsets that these early Christians have. And as they have these four mindsets, it literally makes the church great, meaning they're going to do what the Lord called them so that the Lord is made known, the Lord Jesus is made known, that he's already great and glorious and people that don't know him will come to know him. The first thing I want you to see is right there in verses 23 through 31. So as they, as they <clears throat> come back, what's the first thing? They tell the report and when they released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, what did they do? They lifted their voices up together to God. So the first thing is this, the first mindset that we must have that would make the church great is the mindset of powerful prayer, the mindset of powerful prayer with opposition coming all around and going to continue to happen all around throughout the entire book of Acts. Luke is wanting us to know from the very beginning that these disciples first defense in order to fulfill this mission is prayer. Their first defense in order to fulfill the Great Commission is prayer. It's not the last thing that we think of whenever we've tried everything and we can't do anything. Well, God, I've done everything. What else? Oh, I should pray. It's the first defense. The first thing we need to do in order to do what the Lord has called us to is pray. And here we find in prayer, in the first defense that God gives us, that all of the power, all of the power does not lie in us. You have no power to do this. Instead, All of the power lies in God, which is where it needs to be. God, we can't do anything. You have all the power. We're going to pray now and pray that you would cause this mission to happen. So as we see in the title here that we need to have the mindset of powerful prayer, the thing that we can do is remember to pray. Now, I know that most of us remember to pray usually throughout the day, Three times, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like that's the time we remember, oh, I got to pray, I got to eat. So you think like, but the Lord wants to have us to have a mindset of prayer that we're always throughout the day because he's given us a mission. I need to pray. The only way I can accomplish this mission is by having a mindset of powerful prayer, remembering constantly that there's no way I have no power within me and there's no way that I can do. We as the church can do what the Lord wants us to do. There's no way that the church can be great unless we are the kind of people that pray. Tertullian, one of the very first Christians in the first or second century said this, prayer is asking God for what he has already promised to do. Prayer is asking God to do what he has already promised to do. So if prayer comes hard to you, if you think to yourself, I don't even know how. When I try to pray, I get all confused. I fall asleep. I don't, I don't have an outline. I wander off. I pick up my phone and search. If you're wondering, like, how do I pray? Well, there's, there's, there are outlines that people give, and you've maybe heard the ACTS outline, A-C-T-S, uh, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. I thought those words were very hard whenever I was teaching a youth group. So instead of the ACTS, I just made up one under pray, <laughs> I mean, because that's what you're about to do. Pray, praise, repent, adoration, yourself. You go last. But I thought that was a little easier, right? If that's even too tough for you, you can look at this, the shape of this prayer. There's only two things. You have to remember four. There's only two. They have two things that they pray for. The first one is in verses 24 through 28. They start off by saying, God, you're awesome. You're sovereign. You're in control. You're the creator. You're the revealer. God, you're sovereign. You have the plans. Notice verse 24. They all got together. They said, sovereign Lord, who made the heavens, the earth, 
the sea, everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David did this. And you can see uh, they're talking about the sovereignty of God in 24. And after they quote Psalm, they end talking about the sovereignty of God in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place, your plans cannot be thwarted. In there, they start off with their first part of the prayer just saying, you're sovereign. You're in control. And it's not just accolades you throw to God to make sure that you say those things first before you ask what you need. Instead, it's saying those things to remind you, our God is sovereign. Our God has a plan. Our God can do whatever he wants. Wow, what an awesome God. That's the first part. You just remind yourself about who God is. And then the second part is it's really simple. Help me do the mission. God, make us bold for the mission. You can see it right there after that. Verse 29. And now, Lord, we've talked about how sovereign you are and awesome you are. And you have a plan. Second part. Look upon your servant and the threats that are coming to us and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You gave us a mission. Persecution's coming against us. We want to be bold. Help us be bold. Help us continue to do do this. Two-part prayer. If you can't remember how to pray, this is real simple. It's not like God's impressed with the length. It's not like you went 30 minutes. I'll answer your prayer. Five minutes, you need to work on that, bud. I'm going with this guy. Like, that's not it, right? It's not the length. It's not the length. It's that we pray. It's that we pray. How powerful was this prayer? This simple two-part prayer. Verse 31 says it actually registered on the Richter scale. Literally registered on the Richter scale. Verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I want you to picture one Wednesday when we get together for corporate prayer that we pray so hard that Rock Hill literally shakes. Can we have a prayer service one day that registers on the Richter scale? I don't know if we can, but I would love it. I would love if that would happen. That, that's, pow- that's why I say mindset of powerful prayer. I just don't mean that prayer, prayer has power. I mean, literally, it was so powerful, it shook the ground that they were on. And so what's happening? This, this prayer was so powerful. Not only did it shake the ground, notice what there was the result. They prayed from persecution that came, immediate results. Notice, right after the, what, what shaking got, boom, answers. He shook the ground saying, I hear you down there. Boom, I got you. Look at what he says. Not, it's not, it wasn't audible, by the way. Verse 31, it says, what happened? Two things. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's the one thing they ask? I want you to notice the word for word answer. Right here in verse 29, Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And what happened? They continued to speak, the, in verse 31, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's literally almost a verbatim answer. They asked for this. It was so powerful. God filled them with the Spirit. And the word for word thing they asked for is granted. That is powerful prayer. In order for the church to be great, we have to have a mindset of powerful prayer. We have to realize it's our first and only defense and all the power, literally all the power lies in God and not in us. That's the first one. The second thing that the church has to have, which is right there tucked away in that section that we're looking at, is that we need to have a mindset of bold evangelism. Bold evangelism. God has ordained 
that the way people get saved is not by him magically appearing before them like a poof out of the sky in front of them and saying, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the only way to get saved. Instead, which he could do that. He would be, I think, way more productive at salvation if that was the plan rather than it being us. But that's not the plan. In his sovereignty, he doesn't do that. Instead, in his sovereignty, he equips weak people like us with amazing power in the spirit and sends us off to tell other people how to get saved. The way unbelievers get saved is by us. So the way the church will be great is by us practicing, having a mindset of bold evangelism. So when I say mindset, I mean not forgetting. As I go out throughout the day, my neighbor, my coworker, my family member, or the guy I talk to at the coffee shop every time, having a mindset that isn't like, hey, how you doing? You like the Panthers? All right, see you later, man. But instead, like, I'm going to have a mindset that remembers the Lord has equipped me to be able to do this with the Spirit, and He has given me a mission. I'm going to be bold in my evangelism. Evangelism is just the Greek word euangelion, which just means good news. Good news tellers. So we need to be evangelists, bold evangelists. In order for the church to be great, we have to have bold evangelism. Now, when they pray for bold evangelism, it should be breathtaking to us. Persecution just came. If I'm praying, I'm saying, not make me bold evangelists, but Lord, take away the persecution. They don't pray that. That would be the easy thing. Make it so that I'm okay. Instead, they say, in the persecution that comes, which is going to, we accept that, God. Make me bold to preach your word anyway. <clears throat> it's breathtaking that they even ask for that and not for the persecution to end. Now, I want you to rehearse with me a few things about these first century evangelists. Now, when I tell you these things, this is not to make you feel bad. This isn't to discourage you or guilt trip you. Instead, as you hear these things, I want you to be encouraged, like, wow, they had all that against them and they still did it. Well, I can do it. I can certainly be a bold evangelist. Listen to the things that were going on in the first century. And as you hear this, let it encourage you that you can do bold evangelism. You might not feel like you're equipped. You might not feel like you know how to share the gospel. Listen to this. <clears throat> These people were brand new Christians, like brand new Christians, like Peter just preached them, and they got saved like a week ago, two weeks ago. They were brand new Christians. Not only that, there were no other generations of Christians before them that came and taught them, okay, this is how you do evangelism. They were the first ones. They were brand new Christians with no generations before them that had written all the books on it. They didn't have Packer. They didn't have Dever. They didn't have these other people that had written books. Oh, that's how you do it. Okay. Not only that, evangelism itself as a concept had just started. <laughs> like, it's a brand new thing. It's not like it had been studied. It was a brand new thing. There was no evangelism training. It wasn't like Barnabas took him, you know, behind in, in the Sunday school room and, and said, hey, let me tell you how to be, be evangelist. Not only that, they were likely uneducated and likely illiterate. And lastly, <clears throat> when they evangelized, they faced beatings, imprisonment, and death. If they still had effective evangelism in the face of all those things, none of those things are stacked against us. We have so many books written on evangelism. 
We have had 2,000 years to study the concept of evangelism. We have evangelism training seminars in, in the church today. We have, I bet every one of y'all can read, and at least you're probably, if you're not, if you're not also literate, which I'm sure you all are, you're also well-educated. And when we evangelize, especially here in America, no one's going to imprison you, no one's going to beat you, and no one's going to put you in jail or kill you. That's the same thing as putting you in prison. <laughs> so if that's the case, the mindset of bold evangelism is absolutely something you can have. So when I say that, I mean this with all my heart. Let's take this city for Jesus. Nothing can stop us. The Lord has set up for us an environment in America, in this city, to boldly proclaim the gospel with very little ramifications to us physically in regard to persecution. I want to read a John Wesley quote. And as you hear this, I hope it just, when I read it, it just gets me pumped up. Like, yes, that's what I want. Listen, give me 100 preachers, just, just 100 people. Here it is, people. Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they're clergymen or laymen. That means pastors or congregants. And they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It's exactly, I mean, that's the exact truth. Give us a hundred people in this particular city that hate sin and fear sin and desire nothing but God. And it doesn't matter whether they're pastors or just regular congregant members. They alone will literally shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth if they just all of us become bold evangelists. And it says in verse 33, after this, they were filled. Look what it says in verse 33. Great power was on the apostles. That great power, by the way, you have in you. You don't have any less of the great power that they have with the Holy Spirit in you. And with great power, the apostles, they were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace, mega grace was on them as they proclaimed the gospel. So you have all of that right now, if you're in Christ, it, in, at your fingertips. So the first thing that makes the church great, the first thing that makes the church great is powerful prayer. The second thing that makes the church great is bold evangelism. The third thing is this. It's right there in verses 32. Watch this. And the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. I mean, that's an absolute beautiful description. Think about this. 8,000 people are described as one heart and soul. Let me, uh, let me try to push this meaning in a little bit for you. If, if I were to come to you whenever you were, you're dating your spouse, you're not married yet, or perhaps you're actually there right now. You know, picture back to five years, 10 years ago, whenever it was, and I was like, hey, tell me, and I was, I was going to ask you, you know, you're in that giddy stage, you know, whenever you first get to know them, you're like, oh, they're so great, and we're going to get married. You're like, like, that stage, right? And I say, tell me, tell me about your spouse. And you said, we're of one heart and soul. I mean, can you imagine giving that? Like, I'd be like, I've never heard that one. That's pretty good, right? That's, that's a connection, right? Now, as weak as that illustration is, and as kind of weird as it was, I want you to take that, because when you, when you hear it that way, you think, wow, that's pretty deep. Now take that over and apply it to the church. This church is saying, we're of one heart and soul. 8,000 people can say, our heart 
is united. Our souls are united. So the third thing is this. They have a mindset of gospel unity. Now, this is something that Jesus prayed for. This isn't like, oh, what an added bonus. We never saw this coming. This is something that Christ prayed for before he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus prayed that the church would be of one heart and soul. He said to to the Lord, to God the Father, he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me one day because of their word, that they all may be one. There it is right there, praying that we would be one heart and soul. Just as you... Father, are in me and I are in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that our, our Savior prayed that we would be of one heart and soul. He prayed that we would be one. He prayed that we would be united. And I've, I've titled this that we have the mindset of gospel unity intentionally because the gospel is the thing that we're to be united around. Who Jesus is, that he's the only way, to salvation and what he's done for us. That's what we're unified around, not secondary issues. We're, we're going to disagree in eschatology and all these other things. And that's okay. We're not unified in those things. Those things are important. I want you to understand that I'm right about all these secondary issues and believe with me how I've got all these nailed down. And you need to, you need to see that I'm right here. But we can't let those things if we, if we go over to the secondary issues about eschatology or whatever, and we argue for that for six months, you know what we've done? We've not been on mission for six months. These particular disciples had gospel unity. What does gospel unity, what does that even mean? Yesterday, my son, he's in the flag football league um, with Rock Hill, um, which I'm not sure that July... June and July are the, the wisest time to have flag football. It's like a billion degrees outside. I'm just glad I'm not playing. I get to sit in the shade. Um, but yesterday, they had Ben Watson there. Uh, it's the Ben Watson Flag Football League. And I've never experienced this before. This is, this is Rock Hill. This isn't like a church league. This is Rock Hill Football League. Ben Watson came out. They ran some drills. Afterwards, he preached the gospel to every single person there. All their kids and all their parents. If you don't know who Ben Watson is, he's a tight end in the NFL. His dad's a local pastor here in Rock Hill. Ken Watson's his dad. Um, Awesome people. Uh, They have six kids. So we're like, hey, we have one. We have six. Uh, They even had a daughter named Karis. We're like, all right. So anyway, so here I I want to, um, when we talk about gospel unity, I I want to remind us again of the gospel. And I'm just going to actually do what Ben did because it was so good. Very few verses can capture the gospel uh, completely and totally in one verse. And he did a simple gospel presentation. I love that. I don't think you, maybe there is, you can find one. But this is one of literally, it's the most popular, but it's one of the best verses, if you think about it, that presents the gospel. John 3, 16, this is the gospel. This is what unites us. This is what we say we are united around and we are unwilling to move off this. We can disagree about other things, but we are unwilling to move away from this. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There was no other plan. Only Christ. That whoever believes in him and him alone, not him and something else, but only him, would not perish. Will not spend eternal life separated from God because of his sin. But 
will have eternal life, forgiven of all their sin, and live in heaven with Jesus forever. That is what we are united around. There are other things, secondary issues, but we will not let those things that we disagree on, matters of conscience, eschatology, how we feed our kids, how we choose to have babies, how we decide to uh, educate our children, these secondary conscience issues. People do those things like, oh, it's awesome you do that. I don't do that, but that's okay. Who cares? You can do your way, I can do my way. That don't matter. We're all, we're all believers. We can all just do whatever we want because we're being obedient to what the Lord's called us to, to be good parents or, or whatever. You, can, you fill in any kind of gray area, conscience area, secondary issue, whether it's theological or practical, right there. We're united around the gospel. Those other things are not things we're gonna quibble over. We quibble over those things and we make those things ultimate. We lose our mission. In order for the church to be great, to be great, we have to be powerful in our prayer. We have to be bold in evangelism. We have to be centered in on and united around the gospel. To be one heart and soul around Jesus and what he's done for us. They were of one heart and soul. I mean, think about that amazing statement. What a beautiful description of them. Let's be that. There's one last thing. You'll see it in verse 32, and you'll see it in verses 33 through 34. 32, the very end. It says, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's pretty astounding. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. This is 8,000 people marginalized because of the society they live in, likely very poor. No, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, sold a field that belonged to him and brought it to the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The fourth thing is this that makes the church great, radical generosity. The church is to be marked by their generosity. We are to be different than any other community on earth when it comes to being generous. The reason why is, is because Christians know God and God is the most gracious being ever. And since we know the most gracious person ever, it should make us the most gracious, generous people ever. We should be marked as radically generous, vastly different. Nobody that comes to know God and has been shown and lavished so much grace upon them should be stingy and tight-fisted with their stuff because we've seen and experienced so much grace. I want to read these verses to you again, the descriptions of what happened. I want you to hear these things. We're going to go over them slowly and just think about what's being said. Hear this radical generosity. They had everything in common. This is their stuff. It's meaning stuff. It didn't mean they all, you know, like chess. 
They had everything in common. If there was one thing that needed to be used, they all just used it. This illustration always sticks out in my head from seminary. My my pastor, Larry, at the time said, I'm going to cut my grass. And so I'm going to go into my garage and pull out my lawnmower and cut my grass and stick it back in my in my garage. And then my neighbor, when he cuts his grass, he's going to pull out his lawnmower. And he, why do we do that? We could just have one lawnmower and everybody could just use it. It's that same kind of thing. They had everything in common. I know why we do it, because we're radically individual Americans. But and we're quite wealthy. They had everything in common. Listen to this. This is even more crazy. They amp it up, I think, with everyone on there was not a needy person among them. Out of 8,000 at least, there was not a needy person among them. That's, that's amazing. Here's even more. Listen to this. They sold houses and their land to meet needs. People that were in that group of 8,000 had needs and they didn't have enough money So people that were wealthy sold their houses and their land to have money to buy stuff so that everybody didn't suffer, so that their needs were being met. Radically generous, radically generous. Calvin, looking at this, writes, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we're not moved by the reading of this narrative. This is unbelievable generosity. Now, I want to point out something to you. At the very beginning, I said, what makes a church great? Preacher, the building, music, all those things that I said, which you might have thought of, maybe you didn't, were all focused on the staff or a facility. All these four things in this text are all on you. What makes the church great? It's the church. What makes the church great is if that we, me with y'all, are powerful in prayer. Not me, powerful in preaching. You and I, powerful in prayer. What makes the church great is if we, you, are bold in evangelism. It's not the kids' area. It's you being bold in evangelism. What makes the church great is if we are radically generous with our stuff. What makes the church great is if we are united around the gospel. So every one of these things involves you doing these things in order for the church to be great. Not me. I'm, I'm with you. I should be sitting out in the chairs. I'm part, of, I'm part of that crowd. I'm not up here. So what makes the church great is us living these things out. Now, this first century church was great. They were as we go through the book of Acts, you're just, we're going to continually see how amazing they were. St. Ignatius in the 16th century wrote of the first century church this. It was a church worthy of honor, worthy of congratulations, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy in purity, preeminent in love. They walked in the law of Christ and they, they were, as they were bearing the Father's name. I'm going to read it again. Listen to the description of the first century church by this by the saint that wrote some 1,600 years later, looking back on them. It was a church worthy of honor. It was a church worthy of congratulations. He doesn't mean this, you know, to the neglect of Jesus. 
It was a church worthy of praise, a church worthy of success, a church worthy in purity, preeminent in love. They loved. They walked in the law of Christ and they, as they bore the Father's name. That's what someone wrote of them. What will someone write of us 100 years from now, 200 years from now? Radically individual. What will they write? I want that they said they will say of us, not to our glory, but to Christ's, that we were a great church, that we were bold in our evangelism, that we were radically generous, that we sought God in prayer with all of our hearts, and that we did not get off task, but stayed focused on the mission by keeping the gospel in the forefront of our minds. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about these things. As the words of Tozer kind of challenge us, are we going to be ignored? Are we going to be marginalized? Are we going to be ignored? Are we going to make the church great? I want you to think about these four mindsets. Powerful prayer, bold evangelism, gospel unity, radical generosity. And I want you to write this down. Whatever you've been writing on the whole time, on your piece of paper you've been writing on, I want you to write down this this sentence in the conclusion. It's coming up anytime. If you didn't bring anything with you and you haven't been writing, just write it on your arm, right, right here on your left arm in the conclusion. I want to make the church great and Jesus known by growing in the area of. And think about these four things. Growing in the area of powerful prayer. Growing in the area of bold evangelism. Growing in the area of gospel unity. Growing in the area of radical generosity. Hey, you want to write down more than one, that's fine. I was, I was trying to not overwhelm you. By just saying, write down one. In order for the church to be great, in other words, to make Jesus known so that we reach and finish the task, which one of these four mindsets do you need to grow at? Maybe you need to grow with a mindset of powerful prayer to make you more powerful in your prayer, to make you more bold in evangel. Like, God, just make me more bold. Whatever it is, write those things down. Now, this is what I want to do. I want to show you just from the text we've already looked at. I'm not even going to go any further in Acts. I could go into Acts and show you example and example after example of what happens. I'm just going to use just the text we've already looked at. And I'm only using four chapters of what happens when the church is doing these things. Acts Chapter 2, verse 40 and 41. When the church is doing these things, Acts chapter 2, verse 40 and 41, when the church is great, this is what we've already seen so far. I could use so many much more. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so on that day, those who received the word and baptized, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people get saved in one day when the church is great. Right after that, in Acts chapter 2, verses 47, it said the community, as they were living day by day, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day who are people being saved. So in Acts chapter 2, you've got the, the great kind of gathering, the Sunday morning, Peter preaches, 3,000 people get saved. And then Monday through Saturday, you've got the people living out their faith day by day, and people are getting saved through that. Both avenues, they're seeing evangelism. When the church is great, people are getting added and the, uh, the Sunday morning preaching and people are getting added and the Monday through Saturday as they live out their faith. Acts chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, when, pe- when the church is great, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, walks up to a, a man that's been <clears throat> um, 
crippled his entire life. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And what was the reaction of all the people that were there as, as God healed um, this man through Peter? They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Worship happens. That's what happens. What happens again? Acts chapter 4, verse 4. When the church is great, listen to this. But many of those heard the word as Peter preached and the number of men that, and it's just men because it could have been more, the number of men that came to Christ was 5,000. 8,000 people at least had already been saved. That's what happens when the church is great. Write down one of these. And as you write it down, let's all push in. If we're all adopting these things, we'll have all four of them and we will fulfill this mission that the Lord has given us and we will reach this city for Jesus. That's just so far in the book of Acts what's happened. May the Lord do this through us. And we're going to go into a time of response and worship. We're going to have a baptism and then we're going to respond in worship. So let me give you a couple instructions before we do that. Number one, we're going to show the baptism video right after this. Um, and I want you to just rejoice in this amazing gospel presentation and what, what the Lord has done in the life of Chelsea. After that, um, I'm going to, and Jonathan, who's, who's here, is going to baptize Chelsea. Whenever we have a baptism at Remedy, this isn't like one of those things where we're like, oh, look at that, a baptism. Instead, we're like, woo, yeah, yeah. Like we, it's fine to do that. Um, this is also what we need for you to do. Um, we need for you, for every one of you that has a, a phone with a video function, I want you to video it, okay? We forgot to ask Brian to video. I didn't, I didn't know that Brian was going to be here today. So Brian usually videos because we take the baptism and then we put the video of the actual baptism all on one and we upload it to YouTube. So we want all of you to, to video it. And after you do that, I want you to email all of you, email your videos to Jordan at, at remedychurch.org. And he's going to scroll through all of them. He, he's, he already told him I'm going to do this. This has been pre-approved. And he's going to take the one that's the best angle and the best lighting and blah, blah, blah. And he's going to put it on the end of her, her baptism video and upload the whole thing to YouTube. Here's her testimony. Here's the baptism. So everybody video and scream and, ch and you know do all that. Um, we want you to be excited about that. Um, that's it. That's all the instructions. So, um, oh, I remember what it is. After that, we worship. After that, we are filled with wonder and awe and amazement what the Lord has done. And we stand and we sing out to the Lord for what he's done and what he's continuing to do in this church. Let's, let's make this church great by fulfilling these things and seeing Rock Hill come to know Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. <coughs> thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for... Thank you for entrusting us with this mission. Certainly, there are other ways you could reach the city. There are other ways you could reach this world, but you've entrusted us to do it. And so thank you. God, we pray that we would come up, to stand up to this task, and Lord, that we would pursue being the church that you've called us to be. Help us all to be powerful in prayer. Help us all to be bold in evangelism. Help us all to be radically generous. And help us all to be united around the gospel and see you do amazing things. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen.